is Michael Markman. Uh, hi, this is Steve Gilmore. Can you hear me? I do hear you. Do you hear me? Uh, yes, I do. Okay. So they must have changed something in the software. Something. I don't, yeah. Uh, so, uh, what's floating your uh, boat? Well, uh, I, the, uh, the fun part of the week was watching Trump flounder watching Nancy Pelosi beat him, watching the raid on, on uh, what's his name's house? I don't even want to think of his name. And that has to do with Apple how? Oh, I'm sorry. Was Apple the, the, Apple the topic? No, I just, I, I know that your, uh, uh, your love for uh, Apple and my, uh, excitement about all things Apple. I, I, I always go there when we talk. Well, I'll tell you the uh, <laughs> the medium through which I learn all of this uh, is Apple equipment. It's either coming through on my iPhone or my Mac. Well, occasionally it comes through on my television, but not usually. I mean, sometimes I guess it comes through on, on Alexa, but... Uh, so I, 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 I misspoke. I misspoke. Frequently, it comes through Sorry, over... I'm not sure about that. Yeah, I'm not sure about it either. Quiet. <laughs> but frequently, it comes through uh, over Apple equipment. So uh, how do you see the uh, impact of technology on uh, our lives? Uh, do you see it as in stasis? Do you see it as uh, accelerating? What do you think? Um, well, we're all, we're, we're in very deep now. So it, we're in so deep, it's, it's hard to see uh, where things are going. I think we're, we're, you know, we're clearly at a couple of inflection points um, or just ahead of some inflection points, but we're already so, um, so deeply enmeshed in uh, the platforms that come to us on screens that we can't take our eyes off of. Um, I guess the biggest changes will be when we can stop looking at things. I think that's one of the the big appeals of uh, of the voice operated UIs that smart speakers present us. Mm -hmm. We can rest our eyes. Right. Uh, we can, as our eyes age and mist over, uh, we can start to have a, a relationship with uh, machines that uh, our friends are sick of what we have to say. And so we can talk to these uh, bots and, uh, and feel like there's somebody listening. Uh, maybe that's it. Yes. Although I, I, I don't, uh, I don't have conversations with my smart speakers. Well, I, I just heard you do one. No, well, I, I, I issue commands. And uh, or they they mishear me, and I tell them to shut up. That's not really much of a conversation. Well, it's what passes for one these days. I guess so. I guess so. Uh, I mean, the other thing that passes for conversations is uh, yelling at people you disagree with on the internet, whether it's through uh, Twitter or comments to blog posts or comments to Facebook posts. I, I don't know. I've always felt that uh, 
the uh, the primary function I use Twitter for is lurking, uh-huh. uh, and the uh, you know and a little bit of promotion, but for the most part, it's uh, essentially keeping an eye on uh, the usual suspects. Well, there was this great divide. I mean, early on, and I, I think Scoville was one of the first to advocate that the, the secret to Twitter is not how many people follow you, but how many people you follow. Um, and, and what and why do you think that that was uh, uh, applicable to uh, normal mortals, not just Scoble? I'm not sure I understand the question. I mean, well, I think it's, I mean, it, it, it reinforces it. what you said. I mean, the the value is is lurking and observing as much as it is um, using it as a platform to uh, assert yourself. Right. And, you know, much of what I find difficult uh, about, uh, you know, the, the concern about social media is about people asserting themselves and, you know, picking fights and uh, essentially uh, creating the illusion of uh, insight uh, that's actually being generated by, uh, you know, a talking point script. So one of the uh, one of the things that only us old folks might remember is that Steve Allen used to have a bit where he would read letters to the editor of the New York Daily News uh, in full dudgeon and high outrage, and uh, and get the audience to scream back, yeah, yeah, at every outrage point, and um, it was funny. But now it's our life. the The whole currency of the internet is outrage. Um, People use it uh, for clickbait. I mean, you try and phrase any story with the, the headline that will piss people off most so they'll, they'll be angry enough to, to click on your article. And that's the number one guarantee for engagement is to say something that people are bound to disagree with. But I spend most of my time trying to avoid or filter out that kind of stuff. Well, yeah, but you're, you're a you know superior being. You, you, no, you're I would, above it. I wouldn't say that. I would say that uh, I think most of us uh, are in the position of feeling uh, intimidated and uh, trolled by the uh, social networks, and but at the same time, we also feel it's important. At least I do that uh, that we keep an eye on what's going on and and try and assert the kind of leverage that we have to be able to derive information. We used to have to wait for the half hour of news every night, on one of three uh, channels, and then it turned into cable and then it turned in from cable to whatever this uh, era that we're in now. Uh, And throughout that, I feel that it's an advantage. It may be illusory, but it's an advantage to having uh, access to these global uh, interactive networks. It, it, yes, it, it is, provided you're, you're judicious and also um, maintain a, an emotional detachment from them. Because the, they, are, they are built and designed by by the people who own the platforms and manage the platforms to be addictive and to trigger your outrage. 
And, you know, I think at least I have to train myself to avoid falling for their tricks. Right. But, uh, you know, once we're, once we learn some tools, I mean, you know, Trump is the perfect example of somebody who uh, we have to learn how not to take the bait. Right. Uh, and we see that in some of the coverage now. Uh, they'll start on the cable networks. They'll start uh, covering a, a speech of his. And, and then uh, if they decide editorially that he's saying the same stuff that he said the last 30 times, uh, they'll basically cut away from it and go to something and keep an eye on it for us, which I think is somewhat uh, of a more useful service than just feeding out what you know he's throwing at, at the screen. If they had been faster learners, he might not be president. Yeah, but you know that's woulda, <laughs> shoulda, coulda. I know. Yeah, I mean, but it, I, it, it I really took to... a, it really took a long time before they began to notice that, that that they were not doing the world a service by paying absolute attention to his rantings. I'm not so sure it took them a long time. I think it took us a long time to uh, stop rewarding them. Uh, you know, uh, if they if there was a ranking for uh, the mute button, uh, I think that uh, if that could be uh, uh, turned into some sort of a signal that would be available through Nielsen or whatever, I think that that would be very interesting. Yes. Um, Probably TiVo tracks that. They're certainly capable of it. And I'm sure that the cable boxes are now capable of tracking it. Whether they do anything with the uh, with the data, I don't know. Well, what would you do with that data? Uh, you know, uh, when you brought it up, what would you do with it? Well, I brought it up because, uh, in fact, that is about my only defense other than just not watching the cable news shows. Uh, well, and, we- go ahead. No, I mean, we have, we have learned that, uh, for instance, Netflix tracks that information. I mean, they, they, know, they know precisely how long you watch everything and when you give up on anything. And if you come back to it, uh, and if you watch another episode, they're always tracking your engagement um, in, in, uh, in a very granular way. Uh, absolutely. And, you know, you see their business model in terms of uh, uh, what shows that they support and what shows they cancel. And, uh, you know, basically it's an unseen uh, analytics that they're uh, uh, leveraging. Uh, What would strike me as interesting potentially is a a more transparent approach to the analytics that would not only protect them from being uh, basically screen scraped by their competitors while at the same time would allow uh, us to be able to send signals of interest and, 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 you know, establish more granular kinds of relationships with those, with that kind of a network. Aren't aren't we sending those signals? I mean, well, there's a lot of implicit stuff that we're, that we're sending. Uh, But, uh, there's also this kind of pushback signal that we are uh, thinking is, you know, I mean, yelling at the screen is uh, the first round of defense. 
but uh, they basically turned that into a justification for this around the clock uh, repetition model uh, uh, that's advertising based. Uh, isn't there uh, some other combination of uh, insights and analysis and uh, economic uh, encouragement that uh, can be derived from these, a combination of these implicit signals and also explicit uh, signals of, uh, you know, for example, groups uh, of people that uh, have a, a similar uh, interest in these things. I mean, you know, if you look at the, the binge networks, the, the shows that are popular, uh, there has to be a sort of profile now, uh, given the volume of this kind of what they call peak TV. There, there's, there has to be a profile that uh, could be represented as a very powerful, uh, for example, political force. Well, there are many profiles. You know, I, um, let, let, me, let me tell you one of the first things I learned about politics, and, and I learned this in the early 60s uh, when I was in college. And uh, one, of my, one of my college chums had done a lot of work in the wards during the Kennedy election. And he said that they basically used a card system. And the, the task was to try and identify and touch every person in your ward and mark them down one to five, whether they were definitely for you, leaning towards you, neutral, leaning away, or definitely against you. And, and the game was to make sure you got all of, your, all of your definites to the polls, that you pushed all your leanings to definites, and that you ignore the people who are leaning away from you. So, you know, that's, that's where I first got clued into the fact that politics is not so much a matter of pers persuasion, but motivation and activation. And, and then I've since learned that that system, although probably not on index cards, probably in journals and notebooks, goes back at least as far as 1840. Uh, there's a memo signed by Abraham Lincoln on the Whig election, which he explains to every county leader that that's their job. Their job is to find everyone who will definitely vote for them and make sure that they vote, find everyone who's leaning towards them and work on them. And then triage it down to the people who are working against them. Now, fast forward to the kind of database technology that we have now, the, the attributes that you can assign to a voter. You know, it's not just a ranking from one to five. Now you've got all kinds of demographic attributes and attitude attributes and issue attributes. And, and the, the database available to politicians and the overlays that they can buy because everyone in direct marketing has been accumulating these kinds of databases and everyone in social networking has been accumulating these kinds of databases. So, so the granularity which, with which they can appeal to people to motivate them and activate them is, is something that, that would have been impossible 20 years ago, 50 years ago. But now it's expected. It's how the game is played. So uh, what is it that uh, what is it that has turned this uh, discussion into one of you know, basically fear of Facebook? Why is that uh, considered to be such uh, 
a dominant, uh, you know, blame game. I I did I, I didn't blame them. No, I didn't say you no. did. But I, but, well, one of the re- one of the reasons is uh, just because of the hours of engagement that Facebook has managed to uh, achieve with a large number of people. And if not Facebook directly, then then their owned properties like Instagram or uh, Messenger or WhatsApp. So there are you you always go to where the audience is, and to the extent that the audience and the audience's attention is available on a platform, that platform becomes valuable for good or evil. I mean, you know, it used to be we started out earlier saying. Well, what we had were three networks and and one half hour of nightly news, and you know before that it was fifteen minutes of nightly news. Um, so that that became that became a valuable place, but we now have vastly well, new instruments and uh, platforms of engagement, and and the amount of time people have to engage with it, and the amount of places that people are able to engage with it, have multiplied. It's not just you know, your TV in your, in your dining room or living room or bedroom. It's everywhere you are. Well, I mean, there are a couple of things that seem to mitigate this kind of 24-hour, 24-7 news, uh, which is what this notification model suggests. Uh, you know, I already am, I don't need to watch the 30-minute news or even the 60-minute news because uh, I've, I've already seen the notifications of what I've, you know, been interested in uh, when they happen or soon after they happen. And uh, I think the newspapers become uh, more interesting in this kind of scenario because it allows you to avoid getting chopped up into these hourly repetitive uh, cable news uh, presentations by just going and reading up on what's going on. Things don't change that rapidly uh, in terms of the larger issues. No, they don't. That's why there's so much rep- repetitiveness. If if you happen to pay attention for any length of time to what's happening on a cable channel or on any um, social media network, you spend a lot of time looking, you spend a lot of time repeating because there isn't that much new happening that's of interest to you. Right. And uh, so defining what's of interest to you based on its impact on what you do uh, in your work, what you do in your friendships, what you do with your family, that seems to be uh, to be moving from, uh, I mean, one of the biggest news items that I saw this week was the indication on the part of Facebook that they are attempting to merge the uh, instant messaging framework of three of their services uh, to more fully uh, uh, emulate their the Facebook billions, uh, namely Facebook Messenger, uh, the uh, Instagram, and, what, uh, right. and WhatsApp. WhatsApp being the one that has large penetration uh, outside of uh, the United States. But it's not, it's not clear from what I've read exactly what that means. Um, certainly, they want to do some consolidation of the infrastructure 
on the platform level. Um, it's the kind of things that happens in any kind of merger and acquisition. Uh, my God, do we, do we need five accounting departments? No. <laughs> Lay these three off and consolidate those two, and we have one accounting department. So a lot of what they're doing is, is underneath uh, because they may have similar kinds of data structures and server structures that they can get efficiencies out of. Now, what they, what they wind up doing on the surface is not that clear at this point. Well, what I see it as is a... Uh, you know, an approach to uh, third-party developers, th uh, you know, bot makers, uh, and all of the, you know, so-called so apps that sit in a, the kind of headless uh, environment where uh, you get a service when you need it rather than uh, sitting there in, in a suite, a software suite, on your desktop a la Microsoft Office or whatever. It seems it's more of an on-demand, uh, you know, model, like similar to the cloud. Right. And I think that what that does, if we're looking at it from the, a similar perspective, it, it allows Facebook to move, at least in theory, uh, on top of this uh, uh, reorganization of their, uh, of the frameworks of the, of the security software, et cetera, it allows them to move to a, a, a system fabric where we uh, use the, uh, what you mentioned before, the whole smart speaker uh, audio uh, as an input uh, that takes you away from, or that frees up, uh, a la podcasting, frees up uh, exercise and uh, travel time. Uh, but look at the dynamic of what's going on. You have you have something that's uh, basically a messaging app and a notification app, which sounds like it's it's very much made up of specific interactions. But then behind that, they're all doing what the old television executives used to do. The job of a television executive was to design a flow from one show to the other. So if you tuned in at 8 o'clock, you would stay tuned at 8.30 and stay tuned at 9.30 and go to, go to sleep watching their night show and wake up watching their morning show. They tried to get you to flow from one to the other. Now, all of these apps, which seem on the surface to be based on notifications and messaging, are trying to support story formats where you get engaged in little shows that flow from one to the other. So now there are 30-second shows. And, it, and it, if you don't look away, here comes another little show, and it's all there. It's, it's, it's replicating what television did in minute packages. So it's, it, there's, there's, a, there's a tension between the kind of world you're talking about, which is based on notification and on-demand services, and this need to trap the viewer and keep the viewer engaged. Right, but I, uh, I, I mean, I, I see what you're saying, but I also think that uh, we are becoming... Uh, uh, very frustrated and uh, antagonized by that kind of attempt. I find myself staying off of Facebook as much as possible, simply not because I don't find anything uh, interesting there. I find too much that's interesting there and, and very right. little differentiation between what I want to find out about my friends and family and what these uh, entities are trying to program me uh, to be interested in. So I, I end up, 
you know, looking up uh, after 15 or 20 minutes and increasingly shorter amounts of time because, uh, and I just feel like, well, I've just dipped in and uh, I just don't want to spend another hour looking at uh, stuff that is not going to materially uh, help uh, the things that I'm interested in. It, it becomes uh, effectively a counter to the, the entire service as opposed to just uh, specific people. I mean, there's very little uh, ability to leverage uh, my signals to improve the stream because that apparently is not what their business model is. Right. But I think that there might be uh, as they move over to, I find myself uh, using Facebook Messenger a lot because some of the people that are on the, you know, the shows uh, and uh, GGXs are in, you know, Frank Radis is in London, Keith Tier is often uh, in, in uh, uh, the British Isles, and you know, there's, you know, the ability of the phone over. Uh, IP to basically make the Plano telephone service POTS uh, uh, format uh, irrelevant just uh, is, I think, starting to create this uh, kind of global village scenario that uh, we're taking for granted because it's essentially, we've already basically paid for it. Yes. So I, I, I think that th that platform of messaging is in some ways, uh, uh, it has its own problems, as you're pointing out, uh, and will probably accelerate its, uh, the desire of programmers to basically take over and keep you from you know, taking your eyes off the screen. But it, it uh, I think that they're, at the same time, I think that it's developing a sense of the permission-based uh, model that I think is more valuable and more, and gives us at least the illusion and perhaps the reality of more control. I, I, I agree with that. I, I'm just cautioning that it's a never-ending battle. That, that, the, the most valuable commodity, as you as you said years ago, is attention, and the battle for attention uh, is is what people are investing in. So, you know, we we as individual messengers and consumers of messengers are trying to retain control and assert our control, and the people whose business model depends on their being able to insert advertising in front of us. Those people are working to counter our, our efforts to be autonomous. But I think that the, uh, w what was perhaps true with the so-called attention model, and when, when you say that, uh, you know, that I said this years ago, I, I, you, it, part of me feels like you're blaming me for having said that. I'm not that blaming you. You were, I mean, you know, you know, I feel you know. like, uh, you know, that may have been an insight uh, that was uh, you know, somewhat useful then, but right now it feels like that's been co-opted to the extent that uh, it's 
uh, you know, it's increasingly valueless and, uh, and the subject of a lot of the malaise that we go through with these addictive devices. I'm not yes. sure that I agree with the notion that, uh, that we have to put down our phones in order to be able to pick them up effectively. I just don't understand. I understand it from an educator's perspective. I understand it uh, when uh, I'm in a bar or a restaurant and I hear a song. I just stick Shazam up in the air and it tells me exactly who it is rather than, uh, you know. Uh, right. Uh, I understand that yep. that kind of Siri-based, uh, or I won't say the word, uh, based uh, uh information retrieval and research or sort of on-demand uh, real-time research uh, does not replace uh, you know the brain cells that we're losing because we're not actually burning enough synapses uh, to uh, create memories and knowledge I understand that there's a problem there but I, I don't know that we can't harness this for our benefit uh, in more effective ways. I mean, the, you know, the car, uh, it's creating a lot of problems, but it's also, uh, if we had to walk everywhere, uh, it would be a different world. Yes. Um, I think one of the other things to pay attention to is the atomization of, uh, of messaging. You know, there are, I mean, nothing ever goes away. So th these things that I say we used to have, we still have, we still pay attention to, but the balance has shifted. So we used to have books, we used to have long articles. Um, one of the books I keep returning to and rereading every few years is uh, Neil Postman's Amusing Ourselves to Death. And um, he talked about the shift from a print culture to a TV culture. And th the thing about a TV culture um, is that it's, it is a constant shift of attention. Um, now, you know, going back to pre-internet days, television underwent a huge change when the remote control was invented and people stopped watching long shows and they kept going from one show to another. Uh, Seinfeld's old joke was uh, women care about what's on TV and men care about what else is on TV. And, and things start to get fragmented and messaging starts to get fragmented. And even if you stay on the same news show, they will do a story for 20 seconds or 30 seconds, 90 seconds, if they are giving it a lot of attention and then say, and then they'll say com a complete non sequitur. And now this, and now this, and that's all the time we have for that. We have to move on to another topic. So uh, our sense of information changes from, uh, being engaged with ideas and arguments and um, and uh, syllogisms to just tidbits that stimulate us briefly, and then there's another stimulus, you know. And now it's atomized even further. The stimulus is that uh, something tickles my wrist. I glance at my wristwatch and I see a headline, and then I go back to whatever I was doing. Something is uh, is changing there. Well, I, um, I mean, obviously that's. Uh, a, a problem, but the other side of that is is that uh, you know I'm developing fatigue of 
clever news segues or not so clever news segues. I'm developing fatigue of this kind of uh, uh, potato chip culture. Uh, I'm I'm starting to discover and you know read longer uh, posts that d- deliver something other than you know, the the rhythm of, of most blog posts, for example, to me, I find frustrating because it's, uh, you, you, you get about halfway through and then you realize uh, this isn't going to get much deeper than what we're talking about. If it's right. illustrating some ideas, if it's based on this news culture, it's likely that they've already figured out what the relevant relationships are uh, to uh, other existing posts of about the same length. And so there's this sort of dim- law of diminishing returns there uh, that uh, is, uh, I think, breeding uh, something that's on the border between, uh, you know, insight pundits, which I think are over uh, devalued by the, the current political culture, something between that and uh, a news item, something that has some staying power and some action, next best action at the end of this specific piece of information and a, a path or, a, you know, metadata that will suggest where to go to find out more things about it. I find, I find that to be uh, much more compelling and and potentially much more interesting in terms of incentivizing and uh, and paying for that new kinds of content um can you give me some examples well i think that the, where this I model think the works? binge television model is an example of this uh you know rather than uh have a film which has uh, an hour and 58 minutes or so of uh you know uh, problems, uh, you know, main characters, uh, uh, surprise, middle, uh, you know, uh, you get to know the, the people involved uh, and and then there's some sort of big problem that uh, is sort of inevitable that sort of raises and then there's a, either a, a happy ending or a not so happy ending and, and you're done. But at any rate, it's, it's an ending. It's a resolution. Yeah, whereas the and so the tension is whereas released. some of these, uh, uh, you know, binge. I mean, I'm a particular fan of these uh, long drawn out spy uh, uh, shows like uh, Berlin Station, for example, uh, where you know these people are just there. Everybody's a spy, and it's, it's ridiculous. But there's a certain amount of, well, at least something is happening. Uh, and, right. you know, they're out to save the world or they're out to destroy the world. You, you start to root for certain people and stuff, but it doesn't just immediately stop. It, it gives you a chance to, to develop some depth. It, it starts to feel more like a book or a novel. Uh, yes. And I find that, uh, I, I think that... It, well, they're all chil- children of the Sopranos. That's correct, uh, or Mad Men, or whatever. Uh, well, but I mean, the Sopranos was the grand. That's right, and there's going to be a a, a sequel to the a prequel, uh, which that's will not necessarily be effective. 
And then you've got these uh, political uh, uh, narratives that are kind of long form programming. Like, for example, I just saw, uh, what's her name? Uh, uh, The senator from, uh, I don't know, she's a woman who just announced Kamala Harris. And uh, she just, she's done this rollout of her uh, presidential candidacy uh, over TV shows and uh, interviews, et cetera, et cetera. But today she went back to Oakland and uh, it, it looked very much like an Obama rally and it had some real energy. And she uh, is developing, uh, you can see the campaign starting to gel. Now, who's to say that there won't be uh, other people that have the similar kind of success in breaking out of the pack? But, uh, you know, I think that what will happen is, is that it will be, uh, it's an example of, uh, of other people coming up to the level that she is the first out with right now. And right. that's, a, I think, a much better storyline for uh, avoiding this kind of uh, prepackaged influencer subtly on the border of uh, fake news, uh, you know, kind of political uh, distraction model that that we're getting increasingly angry about. So I don't know if that's uh, too uh, far afield in terms of binge television or peak TV, but I think that there are some characteristics of the emotional part of the, of these productions that uh, are starting to emerge. Yes. Well, you know, uh, at least I hope so. I, I, I certainly do as well. Um, So go ahead. Yes, I know. I, I mean, this, in terms of politics, the stakes are very high this time, and that's that. I think is going to keep people interested, and it's it, and leaning forward, um, at least in the current season, um, politics doesn't feel like something that you can just leave alone and not pay attention mm-hmm. to. I think it, in most seasons, it does feel that way. It's something that people don't actively get engaged with until, you know, traditionally after Labor Day in the, in the last six weeks of the election. Um, but the flip side of Trump's incessant stranglehold on attention is that people are paying attention not just to him, but to anybody that can provide relief from him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so there, there's, I mean, obviously the midterms had a tremendous amount of uh, uh, injection of uh, optimism or at least hope uh, into the political culture uh, because as much as we wanted to believe that there, were, there wasn't just this angry 34%, but that there were other uh, things going on, uh, we really didn't know right up until that's, that election. That's right. You know, I, I, I kept saying to people and people kept saying to me, well, you know, we, we really are the majority. They really are the minority. 
but it was um, it was whistling in the dark until they counted the votes. <laughs> we said, yes, we, we are the majority. They are the minority. But I think to your point, uh, the engagement of on a continual basis or uh, a frequent basis of the electorate in understanding what the issues are and not just being trapped into this uh, uh, fear model uh, is uh, potentially a very welcome sign. Um, David Hogg tweeted out last week that the Florida youth vote doubled in this cycle from the previous cycle. And who's David Hogg? You know, he, is, he is one of the activists who was a, uh, a survivor of the shooting mm-hmm. in Florida at the uh, Marjorie Stoneman uh, uh, school. And, you know, there were, there were about five of those kids who just seemed to be amazingly prepared to take advantage of the fact that people were paying attention mm-hmm. to them. And you think that they're um, successful at that? Continue to be? Uh, uh, he, is, he is continuing to, to hold his audience, yes. Um, and and the, fact that the, the fact that the youth vote doubled from one cycle to the next is astonishing because conventional wisdom was always that uh, the young people don't vote. Mm-hmm. Old people vote. Well, uh, Kamala Harris, uh, one of the interesting statistics about uh, the South Carolina primary, which uh, is going to be pretty significant as it usually is, but perhaps in the Democratic uh, primary, uh, not so much. Well, this time uh, she uh, has an interesting blend of heritages. She has uh, Afro-American, Asian uh, uh, I forget where uh, South, <clears throat> South Asia, Asia, India, yeah, uh, and uh, you know, uh, she uh, that the electorate in the Democratic primary in South Carolina is forty percent women, uh, black <laughs> women. So, uh, you know, that's real political power, potentially. Yes. She doesn't own that vote. Uh, It's going to be in play. But uh, I question whether there are other candidates that we can observe right now that are going to have, uh, uh, you know, a a dominant, uh, uh, you know, attack on her position there if she continues to do what she's doing right now when she made these this speech at this rally in uh, Oakland today uh, there were uh, it was covered live uh, in full by at least CNN and MSNBC I didn't check uh, Fox but uh, you know probably not probably not um, I did not. I, I didn't see it, but I, I saw echoes of it on social media, and uh, the echoes were all glowing. Yeah, I mean, you know, she seems to be building. I mean, we all remember what uh, Obama looked like when he was at the Democratic National Convention four years uh, earlier. Uh, he seemed uh, 
interesting, but not certainly not compelling. Uh, and how he grew in the role was, uh, you know, something that uh, uh, most of us didn't expect. So the thing to watch with her is, uh, A, what kind of money she attracts, and B, what kind of staffers she attracts. Um, does, she, does she get, because there's a pre-primary before the primary, two of them. There, one is the money primary, and the other is the, uh, the people who say, I, I want to help you. And th- those are two things that Obama did very well at. Um, yes, and I think uh, Beto O'Rourke has also done well at that. Yes. Um, so we, uh, we're, we're going to have a very interesting field on the Democratic side. And then there's the outside event, Mr. Coffey. Uh, who? Howard Schultz. Oh, uh, I'm not, I'm not sure of, if, uh, I find that as compelling, but it's probably because I don't know it's much not, about it's, it. it well, other than that he didn't do so well with uh, Starbucks. What what is what is not well not doing well with Starbucks depends on the time frame. Um, he did very well with Starbucks, but the, didn't he? he, may have had a didn't rough he was he the original guy, or didn't he take over and and uh, not do so well? Uh, uh, I I need to know yeah, more. Me too. I need to know more. Click click the link here. Well, I you know it, it's it's what's really important is what we don't know. Uh, in, in that case, well, the thing that we, we yeah, no, but the, the thing that we do know is that he has his own resources to make mischief. Uh, fortunately, his trial balloon, which went up tonight on 60 Minutes, it, is not being met with great enthusiasm. So I imagine, uh, I imagine this is going to go nowhere. I don't think I don't think there is any hunger anywhere for uh, Howard Schultz candidacy uh, because the only thing that it can do is split the anti-Trump right. vote. Uh, the, and, nobody, uh, and nobody who's anti-Trump has any interest in splitting the anti-Trump vote. Uh, Nancy Pelosi proved that to us this week and over the past month that uh, in solidarity is victory. Well, we'll see. It's time to wind this up, but uh, we'll see. What's your quick thought about... I think the... It, you know, Trump is on the airwaves basically saying tonight that, uh, uh, you know, that he's, uh, you know, he wants his wall and uh, that he has no problem going for an emergency. I think he's bluffing. But I think it's, but I, it's, it's, it's all that he has. Uh, uh, he probably will do it. It will be a challenge. And the thing about a wall is that um, it doesn't go up overnight. You know, a, a major undertaking like that is a is a project, uh, and by the time any, so he'll get to say he has a wall, but there won't be any wall there. Right. Well, I, I'm good is. with that uh, as long as long as we're actually not paying for it. But uh, yes. but I don't know that that's uh, what I'm talking about. Is I don't think that he. I think he may be misunderstanding the appetite uh, for in three weeks having another crisis. Right. Uh, so what do you think? Do you think the Democrats are going to come up with anything that could reasonably put the ball back in his court? Um, 
I, I don't know. It's not, you know, at this point, it's not the Democrats per se. It's the conference committee. So it's, it's the Democrats and the Republicans coming up with something that they can agree to. And that's, that will depend more on the status of the Republicans at this okay, point. Okay, so let's talk about and the And the appetite, that, the appetite that the Republicans have for supporting Trump. Right. So um, in three weeks, do you else. think that the Republicans are going uh, to... I don't think that the Republicans are going to give on uh, uh, DACA. Not this time. Uh, I think what Trump is doing is basically saying, no, that's a separate issue and we're going to deal with that next. And some right. of the pressure has been taken off for the, by the Supreme Court, court not ruling on, on uh, the uh, Trump's DACA uh, rejection uh, so that, that that will stay in force. DACA will stay in force for uh, probably a, another year. So I think that that allows them to kick the can down the road just a little bit uh, beyond this three-week period. So I don't doubt that they're going to actually try and put that together uh, and try and confront the immigration uh, debate because I think that that will basically kill the uh, the the you know the, a bipartisan approach. Yes. So so what do you think is going to happen? My, my... My crystal ball on this is very cloudy. Um, I know, but the, the, you know this. But I, I, but you know, I, I, I think, I, as, you know, as far as I can tell, I, anything could happen. Um, uh, I think that uh, Trump will not have support in closing the government again, and I don't think that um, the Democrats will support anything that is substantially a wall. You know, I, I don't know if you heard uh, uh, Nancy Pelosi's suggestion was uh, you, you could plant these flowers on the border and call that the wall. That's what she, that was she was, was as much as she was willing to give him. Well, uh, you know, I I think there's if Pelosi plays her cards right, which I certainly uh, suspect that she will, uh, that they will come up with uh, a reasonable package which is close enough to the amount of money that we just blew on the, the government shutdown uh, and in support of uh, border security uh, and, uh, you know, and basically push it back on the Republicans to be able to, to try and reject it because they're trying to protect their uh, extreme right, right wing. Uh, I noticed that Trump basically uh, sort of laughed off Ann Coulter's uh, comments about him is that she must be angry at him. Uh, you know, it seemed to be a fairly, for Trump, a fairly nuanced uh, uh, comment. So, you know, I think that Trump and Pelosi are playing this relatively smart uh, in terms of their bargaining positions, but I think. Uh, I wonder who the deal breakers are. Who the deal breakers yeah. are? Well, the, for one, Stephen Miller, um, and for another, the uh, the right wing media chorus. Um, yeah, but I'm I'm suggesting that the right wing media chorus may be a little isolated right now, uh, and since 
you know, basically they they played their cards and stopped him from making a deal before the shutdown. And now, uh, you know, right. they don't have a lot of uh, sway uh, with the voters right now. No, they don't have sway with the voters. And I think they don't have, and if they don't have sway with voters, they don't have sway with Trump. And Trump's, Trump's whole fortune is tied to the base. And, um, and the, the question is, who is the base following? Will the base follow Trump or will the base follow Hannity? And that, that is something we'll see in the next three weeks. Or, um, you know, in Hannity, I presume, will stay close to Trump. So if Trump shifts away from uh, Coulter, then Hannity is going to stay with Trump. But lurking, lurking in the deep corridors is Stephen Miller. And what I'm looking for is what is the moment where Trump decides that Stephen Miller is more trouble than he's worth? Well, he did that with Bannon, so there's always that possibility. But uh, I, I think uh, I think that the, the real problem is is the Democrats don't want uh, to solve this problem any more than the Republicans do at this point. Yes, and that, that depends on how you define this problem. This problem is a variable that needs to be defined. Well, we're a lot closer to uh, a workable uh, uh, divided government than we've been in in many, many years. Yes. That doesn't mean that we're going to get there, but we are closer. Well, stay tuned. I guess that's a good place to end this. All right. Michael Martin, thank you, sir. Thank you. Bye.